This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have a guest that um, I've been looking forward to talking to and we've traded some emails for a couple of months now trying to get our schedules to line up. But I have Kate Graham from Catalyst Canine. And I first heard her on my friend Cameron Ford's podcast. And she talked about lots of stuff with Labradors and she does a lot of breeding. Very much a, uh, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to Labradors. But she hit, she pointed out a couple of things on Cameron's Ford, Ford's podcast that I want to talk about, you know, in, in more depth today. We'll get to that, um, about where we're going to go. We're going to talk about some selection testing, how to find a lab that works for your agency and, and for the purpose that you want. But before we get to that, I'm just going to let, uh, give Kate the microphone and let her talk about her background, which is extensive. She's uh, very impressive, all the stuff that Kate's done to get to the point where she's at breeding uh, dogs. So uh, welcome, Kate. I'm glad to have you. No, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be here and excited to be here. And yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Kate Graham. I own Catalyst Kennels. Um, we have both a pet side and working dog side to the business. Um, we primarily breed Labradors for the purpose of single purpose detection um, and tracking. The majority of our dogs go to law enforcement, federal agencies, and then some go to SAR and some sport homes. Um, we are not a huge scale breeder. We only do about three to four litters a year. Um, but within those litters, they are designated for, for working purposes. So um, we try to pair very carefully to make the most of what we can breed. Um, we do all green dogs. We do not typically pre-train any of our dogs. We do some that we sell as puppies and the vast majority that we raise up until about a year, year plus of age to sell as green dogs. Um, my background and coming into all this, um, I grew up in a non, in a family that had dogs, but not one that did anything really dog sport related. Um, my family was very into horses. When I started getting into horses, we found out dogs were much less expensive than <laughs> horses to maintain and work with. So I got into showing dogs and uh, at about 10, I was showing dogs and AKC confirmation and agility and rally and obedience and all kinds of fun stuff there that kept up all through all through high school. Wasn't going to go to college, was going to just keep playing the dog stuff and try to take my hand at handling for the sports stuff professionally um ended up getting convinced by my mother to please try college for a little while so went out there uh, i went to suny coble skill at that time uh doc mckenzie so steve mckenzie who was a napwada master mm -hmm. trainer um was teaching he got me onto to his team pretty quickly and we had a good time so I ended up spending a little over five years at Cobalt Skill. I did my degree in three and then stayed around to teach with him for a while. So I was there for a couple of years as an adjunct professor teaching within the canine, uh, canine sciences section of the animal science program. Um, Doc was hugely instrumental in 
teaching me a lot about canine sure. selection um, and a whole lot about how we raise green dogs and different methods, thoughts, all of that, and a whole lot of detection stuff, tracking stuff too. So that was a great five years. Really appreciate that. And uh, we stayed closely in touch and he was always there to bounce ideas off breeding program wise, selection wise, why things happen the way they do, why dogs think the way they do, uh, behavioral genetics wise up until his passing a couple of years ago. Um, so that was where I kind of got my start there. I had started doing green dogs at that point, had started looking for the foundation of my breeding program at that point, almost 10 years ago now. Um, and then ever since then, we've been doing small numbers of litters, um, which has grown gradually throughout the years. I was working after Cobalt Skill in the service dog sector for a while, um, mostly within genetics and breeding program development, looking at how we can use different types of uh, data, um, testing, selection testing um, from younger ages and older ages to help us determine what dogs would be consistent. Uh, successful candidates for service dog work, which is a very different kind of work than what we're looking for sure. for the police side of things. And then slowly continue to build our program up until it was essentially a full-time job on both sides of it. So I was doing my service dog role full-time. We were doing enough labs that that was over a full-time job. And then late last year, we ended up making the split, taking the dive in. We bought a 45 run kennel on 20 acres that was well developed and maintained so we've got a whole property with a now large commercial kennel um and whole facility for puppies and baby development and all that so that's the the short version of how that's we've sure. gotten to where we are now so and your your business right now is um, look at your website it's primarily breeding Labradors and starting as, as puppies. So a customer could come to you and say they were either search and rescue or a police dog prospect and, and talk to you about from the beginning and maybe uh, figure out what which dog you need from there and, and then you'll help them, help them from that, that point forward. Exactly. So we do some that are just your typical green dog. We try to usually have some so on, so on in, in stock, but um, yeah. essentially try to have some available that are just your standard kind of green dog. And then we do work with a lot of agencies that will contact us looking about a year out from their projected date that they're looking to bring a canine on. When we get those, those get to be fun because we can kind of work that dog and develop that dog a little bit more for what they're going to be looking for and using. So if we know we have an agency that's going to be doing a lot, you know, really heavy on some of our vehicle stops in yeah crappy areas with lots of traffic, then we're going to make sure that puppy before it's even 16 weeks old sees a ton of traffic exposure and, uh, you know, just searching yeah. the interior vehicles or whatever. So depending on when we have, you know, that information from agencies earlier, we can oftentimes take a little bit more time to prepare that puppy in a way that they're still green, but they have been developed to the their potential for the things that they may be more likely to see in their own environment or if we have an agency or a, an academy that we know is going to be using things like roll towels or tennis yeah. balls or whatever you know we can get that dog just set on that that thing a little more or figure use that information to figure out what dog might be the best fit for them sure um and so it's always a gamble you know we sure. could grow a dog up till nine months and then be like nah this dog isn't yeah. gonna work out but we do the best we can with what we have and uh 
yeah, try yeah. to use as much information as we can to make the best decisions possible. So I want to back up for a minute, if you don't mind, going back to uh, when you were with uh, Doc McKenzie and you were doing some of the studying and working there. Was a lot of that with floppy ear detection dogs? I know he, d he did a little of everything. So were they all different yeah. types of breeds? Yeah, so Doc at that point had his, uh, he had one of his Malinois, and then when I was there, uh, he had gotten his second Malinois or Mal Shepherd cross in. Um, but at that time, the college did not have really any working dogs on site um, and did not have a whole lot of working dogs that they had access to on a regular basis. So we had the dogs from local agencies, um, Albany County, Greene County, New York, who we could, you know, look at quite a bit yeah. um, and work with. But when, the program was designed as more of a basic canine program, a canine training program, a lot for the pet side. When I had expressed a greater interest in the working dog side of it, um, Doc essentially made me an offer. And he said, if you go out, if you're willing to fund and find a way to get some puppies here for, you know, some lab prospects, he's like, I will work you through it. I will help you selection test them. I will help you, you know, pass on yeah. whatever I can. So at that point, I figured out how to break my lease from the place that I was staying right there in college, found a new place that was dog friendly, found a place that actually let me put up outdoor kennels to use for that. And we went out lab shopping and it was a, I am by no means a wealthy person. It was a whole big thing. I worked my butt off in college to pay for all those things to make that happen. But it was a uh, great experience for that and a great teaching experience. So through my time in Cobalt Skill, we did, I think eight green dogs together and that was it was a it was a great learning experience for sure and and doc had a tremendous amount of knowledge about all dogs so i imagine being able to pick his brain you know throughout the process had to be you know invaluable i would imagine oh absolutely i mean he taught me so so much and he taught me too how to you know to always go out you can you can get a little bit of information from everybody some things you use some of it you put away some sure. of it you know that's what you don't want to use but um you know everyone's got something to offer as far as knowledge goes so he was really big in, in helping diversify you know sites and make sure we're not just disciples of one trainer sure. but uh you know open to ideas from a little bit of everybody and with that in that research and the training that you did what was the the importance that they put or non-importance into the bloodlines of the genetics of each individual dog when you were looking at when you're going to pair two dogs together for breeding uh, how deep in the bloodlines did you guys go and, and what were you looking at and that kind of stuff that is a huge i think a huge point and something that needs to be uh paid attention to equally today so Within labs specifically, and, and several of our other breeds, we have a couple main sources for dogs or a couple main bloodlines that we're going to pull from. So in labs on the working side of it, you're really going to get either the dogs that have been bred for service dog work, the dogs that have been for field trial work, or the dogs that have just been your kind of typical standard pets or yeah. active pets. Um, with what we're looking for, the field trial dogs and those bloodlines have worked best within those lines there's so many different subsets and strains that we can pull from to determine what might best fit our needs so on a broad term the service dogs we expect to or or the failed service dogs because still a lot of our law enforcement is procuring dogs that are service dog washouts that yep. are then getting transferred over to to law enforcement work um so within those dogs we typically expect usually really great environmental stability, usually a far decreased prey drive, 
it doesn't do any blind person good if the dog wants to chase every bird or squirrel that that walks down the street in front of it. Um, Usually a little bit calmer and and less um, outwardly, you know, energetic, motivated uh, type of appearance that way. Um, But still a dog that's got motivation to do some work and and has work ethic to do work because they need to. Um, From the pet side of it, we could pull anything. The varieties are endless. Typically don't have a whole lot of consistency or know with a whole lot of consistency what we're going to produce within that, though. And then the field trial lines, there's so many different lines within there. We've got the trial lines, the hunt test lines, which is a slightly different game. You've got the American ones and the British ones and all of that. Um, We all have our certain little little subset and area we like to play in. I know I like a more independent, um, internally motivated dog. I like a dog that is going to be a little more resilient to their handler, a little harder of a dog versus a soft dog per se. Um, I prefer a dog who's willing to play a um, game quite intensely with the handler. So a dog that's a little bit pushier, a little bit more physical. Um, And I like them small. I like them, you know, 45, 55 pounds, um, small, agile, built appropriately so that they can stand up to the rigors of the work. They can fit in the small spaces they need to without breaking down. And there's a whole lot more than that. But, um, you know, I've got my my little space I like. I tend to find that in field trial lines that come from a few of our prominent sires way back and and field trial dogs that were successful at a certain period and era of the time when the game rewarded those types of dogs. So, um, Well, the reason I wanted to bring that up is, is, you know, when I first started, you know, quite a while back uh, with patrol dogs, uh, there was a trainer there who told me that, you know, bloodlines don't mean anything. It's just an individual dog. Well, luckily, pretty quickly I learned that but bloodlines mean a lot. And then through travels in Europe and meeting some people that, that breed, you know, some of the duchies and some of the, the mouths uh, and then seeing some of those dogs here working, you know, like there's like I had a dog that was a, 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 a Rudy Peggy dog and, and there's thousands of Rudy Peggy descendant dogs in the country and the the similarities of those dogs is is phenomenal and it, and it really taught me how much you know the bloodlines really do matter and and it, when you can research the bloodlines a little bit what was i've gotten much more into the labradors and doing the the detection dogs i don't see that emphasis on that very much it's just you know this is a labrador and test him and and see what you think of him and i think we have an okay uh track record doing that but it is interesting to me that there's very little emphasis when we buy our dogs on where this dog actually came from originally and i think uh in talking to you today i think we'll probably see that maybe we need to know a little bit more about the history of the dog because i think um ignoring their genetics sometimes i think we're then we end up fighting their genetics would you think that's probably a true statement absolutely no i agree and i think there's so much that we can see. So we've got our line pretty dialed in as far as what I like. And, and when we're making breeding decisions, we're uh, using that information quite a bit. But looking at what a dog is like working style, even looking at, you know, a lot of times we have consistency between that dog and litter mates. Um, we can determine down to, you know, if we're looking for a dog who's really going to be going, they're going to be doing a lot of tracking and they're going to be needing that dog a lot for tracking. Certain of our bloodlines are more into having very deep, strong noses and and tend to be more natural trackers than others. And again, that information, genetics isn't going to paint the whole picture, 
but it can stack the deck in our favor. Um, and yes, environmentals are important and how the dog is raised, the environment is raised and it's huge. But if we don't have genetics there, we can only bring the dog to a certain potential. Sure. So as, as much as we do with our pointier dogs, I think we need to, and our floppies too, look at where that dog comes from, what's behind it, how do the parents work, how do the siblings work, um, and that information is going to give us a whole lot of stuff about how that dog is going to mature, how old they're going to you know, be before they really mature into a point where they're ready to work, um, and maybe what's going to be useful to reward them, um, or again to what degree they're going to be able to fit into a certain type of program so genetics matters sure so at this point um if you're going to purposely breed uh a pair of your dogs for police dogs that you that you want to get out into police agencies um, an average litter is how many dogs so average is probably seven to nine you know around eight is a a good average so out of the eight um are you having pretty good success that seven or eight of those will actually end up working for a police department? Yeah, so we actually have, we've been very lucky to have, especially within the past three years, to have some really good success ratios there. So we've learned we need to diversify and within a within a litter, if we have eight, say we're gonna focus on the strongest, probably five or six for, for police work. The ones that we see some factors on early on that we see that they may not be as suitable for for police type work, we're gonna start to diversify those a little bit younger and look at are they maybe good live fine SAR dogs or are they gonna be maybe good USAR dogs or is there another task or job that they can go to um, that we're seeing some some traits and markers that they might fit into that. If they do, we're typically gonna make that decision to to switch them into a program that's going to be better geared for that or to sell them at that younger age. A lot of times like our SAR handlers, like getting dogs a little bit younger versus an older green dog. Um, So we might move those along at that younger age there. So um, there's no point in making a dog do a job that it doesn't want to do. That's not going to help anybody. So when we see those things early on, that suggests they might not be super fitting. We're going to move them on. So out of a litter of, you know, and we do now quite a bit keep, the whole litter back. Um, we had not done that previously. Right now we're involved in something called the Domestic Breeding Consortium, which is funded under DHS and organized and, and kind of run quite a bit through John Hopkins University for data collection purposes. Um, and so with that program, we keep the entire litter that uh, back that is dedicated to the DBC. So like I have a big old pregnant dog hanging out with me right now. <laughs> She's due next week. Um, and all of her puppies, we will keep that entire litter back for a year. So at a year, TSA will come out. They will select the dogs they want from the litter. And then the leftovers, whatever they don't take, um, we will be able to place into whatever career is most fitting of them. Um, but that is eye-opening, keeping an entire litter of puppies sure. back for a year. Because there are definitely some that throw you, you know, you see it eight weeks, you're like, oh, this one's never going to be it. And then you see them in a year and you're like, holy crap, that's the, that's the stunner of the yeah. litter. So um, sometimes they, they mess with us like yeah. that. So now with that experience, that would be one of my questions is, what age do you start getting more com- comfortable saying, you know, is it eight months, nine months, 10 months that you're pretty comfortable? I, I'm looking at the dog I'm going to have. 
Yeah. So I think when we're looking at what we're going to have for the future, that, that nine to 10 month age is usually pretty indicative of, okay, we see all the pieces that are there. Um, knowing the, the lines that we have, we know a lot of our things like motivation and just um, work ethic, focus, all that stuff is going to continue to increase with age. But at that point, our basic, you know, environmental stability, any noise sensitivity, any um, unstable surfaces or, or just general aversions, if those are there at that point, we're, we're pretty confident those are going to stay there. You know, those aren't going to go away. Um, so usually by about 10 months, we're comfortable saying, all right, we know, you know, we're, we're pretty comfortable with who's who from the litter and who wants to do the work and who doesn't want to do the work. And is at um, at that point when you're kind of analyzing their drives, is anything malleable still where you can kind of push one 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 trait that you like a little bit, or are they at that point they're pretty much set and here's what you're gonna get. I think there's still a lot that's malleable at that point. I think we can. I don't think we can fix things that are perhaps genetic or ingrained within the dog. So things like say any of our environmental instabilities or um, environmental issues, those we have not had any good luck fixing. If they are there around 10 months, we can work with it, socialize, expose all of that, all we want. I, in my opinion, those dogs still typically have those issues later on in life. Um, They may be decreased, but they often, if you know they're there, you can look for them, you can see them. so yes, we might be able to get it to a workable point, but that dog is still often going to have that in the back of their head there. Um, some of our other things, like if we have a dog who maybe prefers to, you know, play fetch and we want them to play tug at 10 months, yeah, we can probably work with that and, and you know, change quite a bit of that. Um, but, you know, some of those more superficial traits, I think we can work with those things that are deep in there. For example, if one of my dogs out of a litter of eight, there's one that has some aversion to unstable surfaces or slippery surfaces. Uh The rest of the litter doesn't. That dog, we could work with the slippery surfaces all day long. We're going to see some points where we get some progress. We're going to see some points where they regress. But typically, those dogs are going to carry that that insecurity, maybe at a more mild point, but they're going to carry it with them as they grow up and develop. And as they if they were to make it to the road, I hope they made it to the road. So it's our job as the breeder and vendor to make sure that we're not hiding things or masking things. Sure. Those things are easy enough to make look pretty or to set up for selection testing so that no one sees them, but they're going to be there and they're going to stay there. And it's important that the dog is uh, advertised honestly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you touched on something there that I just want to go over real quick. Um, you said cool. some of the dogs that maybe if you want to play play tug-of-war with or play retrieve games with, do you see a lot of that? And my point is, is like I have a dog in, in my agency that anybody who sees this dog loves her. She's a dynamite little dope dog, and she's a Labrador retriever. And I got her because mm-hmm. an agency would only play towel tug-of-war with her, and they thought she was awful. And yeah, and she is a dynamite dog if you simply have her retrieved. So I always thought it was funny that that this agency gave up on her because she, she if you try and tug the, the towel with her, she doesn't care. If you throw the towel, she loses her mind. And I, I'm curious if you see a lot of people that are locked into their reward system has to be one way as opposed to just figuring out what works best for each individual dog. 
I agree. And at the end of the day, they are Labrador retrievers. They are bred to retrieve. That is what their hundreds of years of genetics say they should be doing. And so often, if left to their own devices, that's what they are going to choose to do. We have genetically selected, manipulated these anyone who's looking for detection dogs through the years often to increase possession and, and create a harder mouse dog. Um, but at the end of the day, we're fighting hundreds of years yeah. of genetics that are bred to be a soft mouth duck dog. Yeah. Um, so some dogs we can convince to play the game in other ways. So if we teach them young, if we, you know, if we're careful about, um, exposing them to certain ways, playing with them very carefully when they're young so that we're really encouraging and rewarding the possession and um, encouraging, you know, tug and making them feel nice and empowered about their tugging and all of that. But there are some that just want to fetch. And if they have all that motivation and work ethic for it and they're willing to, you know, work with that same intensity to get that reward, and that reward is a feasible reward to be able to take and apply to real life, then why not? Yeah. It, it works. I agree. And that is just kind of a, kind of a little soapbox thing for me that I've, I've seen that a few times where agencies get locked into. It has to be this particular reward delivered this way. And it's like, that's actually a nice dog if you would just play the game the dog wants to. And, and who cares if it's like I, another example I had is a, a dog. The only thing he wanted to work for is a, a fairly big lab. But he only worked for the little baby-sized Kongs. Anything else he didn't <laughs> care about. But if you gave yeah. him a baby-sized Kong, he loved it. So I was give him. A, there and you they, go. they were asking me to, to help transfer him over to something. I was you you don't have a problem. You have a dog that works wonderfully. Give him what he wants. So. Right. Right. No, I agree. I don't want to get into what I what I kind of teased at the beginning of the show is um, when you were on Cameron's, you talked about when you were talking about selection tests. So I want to kind of go into selection testing of uh, of a, the 10 month old or the 11 month old dog that someone like me would go to because you know obviously i don't deal a lot with puppies and in, in, in my position buying dogs for for police departments which most of us do not so when when i'm tasked with going to look for and we'll talk about single purpose detection dogs i'm looking at floppier dogs i i have a selection test it's it has served me you know pretty well over the years and i think i end up with with pretty nice dogs from and I have a type of dog I like from, from a lot of experience. But when you were talking to Cameron, uh, one of the things you you mentioned in, in discussing selection tests, one of the things you mentioned was the difference between arousal and drive. And for me, that was almost like an aha moment because I like, a lot of the dogs I like and people that know me know that I like very high drive dogs and kind of kind of the dogs that are a little bit of the, the asses in the kennel that that are a little bit more possessive and very busy. Um, it's just the type of dog I like, and I've had good luck with those. But I think a couple times I've, I've bought dogs that I thought were going to be one way, and uh, even taking them off-site away from the vendor, I think I still got um, fooled by their arousal of the situation as opposed to what their true drives were. And when you talk to Cameron about it, you guys talked for a minute about it, but I want to go a little deeper in that. So if we could kind of turn to selection testing at the age, you know, we talk about 10 month and just kind of walk me through what, what you look for when you're doing a selection test and the stuff you've learned over the years about dealing with a lot of dogs on that. Yeah. So arousal versus drive is definitely something that I see a lot in the floppies and, and we see it just as much in the pointy ear dogs. Um, when we're looking, I think it's important 
to define out what we're talking about, arousal versus drive. So arousal, we're talking about uh, a lot of energy, a lot of movement, a lot of busyness. But arousal does not have to be productive. Arousal is just a big show of emotions, whatever that emotion may be. So big whole lot of emotions exploding. Um, drive is that, well, I don't know if anyone's actually you know, defined drive in a way that we can all agree on at this point, but if we're going to call it something like motivation or, or performance is how well a dog can perform a task and how intensely, efficiently, um, and, and, you know, with a great degree of uh, work ethic and, and focus and motivation, how they complete that task. So when we're looking at that difference between arousal and drive, we've got to define out that we're looking at two, two slightly different things. And one of the biggest things that I was taught when it comes to the two is something called a Yerkes-Dodson curve. Um, and so that Yerkes-Dodson curve talks about the relation of energy and performance. Um, and there's great diagrams online. You can pull one up. It's a beautiful little chart with a bell curve on it. And so what it basically goes through and says is that as energy increases, the performance that an animal or a creature should give should also increase that, that degree of how well that task is performed to a certain point. When we get to a certain point, energy gets so high that the performance level begins to decline. And we hear about this plenty in working dogs. We call sure. them, they go over the top, right? Yep. Dogs that are over the top. And sometimes we market that as a great thing, but like at the end of the day, your over top dog is the dog that's spinning and running 15 laps before he's actually searching the room to find the dope. He's, yeah. you know, yep. so, um, so energy can, can increase to a point that, you know, there is a point of kind of that optimal performance. We get too high in energy level. We go over that path that point of optimal performance and we start to get to a decline in our performance so it's a nice little graphic and illustration to show us that uh that relation between the two concepts with dogs when we're selection testing one part that i'm often looking for in the selection testing is not necessarily how explosive that dog might look um just just standing there per se um but i want to see the degree that that dog can focus and how hard they work to achieve a task a dog that i release to go do even some a ball hunt in tall grass if that dog spends 15 minutes running giant circles and giant laps but is not actually hunting or working efficiently or coming up with some kind of a pattern if i can't see that that dog is actively trying to solve the scenario and instead they just look like they're a, a tea kettle blowing off steam sure then that suggests a dog to me that's got far more arousal, but maybe not as much drive. A driven dog should be able to do their task with a great degree of intensity and focus, but they should be efficient. If they're really that driven, they want to get to their item as quickly as possible. And running in 15 laps in giant circles around that field is not going to get them there. Um, so that is something I like to look at with my young dogs. Do they get right to work? Or do they need that kind of pressure release to, to get, you know, through before they can start work? Um, within labs, we typically see that those dogs that can get right to work and work very efficiently in their task um, stay that way kind of as they mature. Um, whereas some of ours that do a lot of the, the looping around, yeah. that big energy release before they actually start, you know, using their nose, 
that often does stay consistent to how they work throughout everything else. And, you know, when we're out doing a car stop and doing a vehicle sniff, I don't want to have to lap that car four times. I want my dog to go out and be working the first time, that first rotation around. Um, And so, yeah, that's And and when you talk about get to work, you're looking for a dog that starts using his, his nose and is actually hunting as opposed to just running around like a jackass. Correct. Exactly. A dog who's running around with no purpose or or sense versus that dog that as soon as we let them go, they are activating their nose or they're trying to use their, their brain to figure out where they saw that thing last and they're going there. And, um, that is, looks like they are actively trying to solve the puzzle as hard as they can without just having this big show of, uh, this big flashy sure. show of, of whatever it yeah. is. So the dogs that run around and, and scream and bark in circles, um, they look often really flashy, but we have to look at, is that dog working or yeah. are they just, yeah. Are they accomplishing a task or are they so over the top that they have to release a whole lot of that energy sure. before they can even think about accomplishing a task. And when you're watching the nose and you're watching them hunt, are you also breaking that down to, to like, like I like to see, is the dog trying to use the, the air right on top of the tall grass or does he put his nose way down deep? Do you see a difference in dogs that, you know, how they're, how they're hunting that way? Absolutely. I think in broad strokes, I feel like we see a lot more of our, our Malinois with their head, you know, way up in the air and looking for that, that stuff that they can grab um, up higher. Our, our shepherds tend to be a little bit lower those labs tend to, I feel like, trend a little bit more towards often what we see from the shepherds, their nose a little bit lower, which goes back to their genetics. What they've, you know, spent years working on finding is is birds that are embedded in cover. And yeah. so their noses are naturally a little bit lower that way. Um, but no, I think there can be, you know, the difference between a dog that is actively in pursuit of odor and searching to try to obtain odor versus a dog that's running around waiting for odor to slap it in the mm-hmm. face. And yeah. I think those two things look a little bit different. I agree. I agree. And I think um, just it takes a period of time to kind of, you know, realize that too. And, and like I bring that up because I prefer just myself. I like when I'm, if I, if I have two dogs and one of them is keeping his nose high up in the, the grass, trying to use the, t- the top of the grass, I've had good luck, especially with my patrol dogs, that those are the yeah. dogs that will then start air setting a suspect one yard, two yards away and start working that right. as opposed to needing to walk up close to them and, and track towards them. So I think, you know, when we talk about selection test, at least in my opinion, working with people like yourself really does a lot of good because then we can start learning the idiosyncrasies of not just hunting, but how is that dog hunting and how is he using his senses and, you know, then it sounds like you and I are on the same page that when you see some of these things that will translate a year down the road when the dog's actually out in the field working. No, I agree. Absolutely. And I think so much with that, that hunting style and we can see that even in baby puppies with how they're hunting, you know, how, how they use their nose. And I think there's a lot we see in, in young puppies more so along the lines with, are they easily frustrated? Um, or not, because we see a lot of frustration in young puppies. It's a pretty common thing. And frustration is a great tool for us that can help increase motivation. Sure. But if we see a puppy that gets frustrated continually and their work 
their their performance on a task decreases because they're frustrated, that starts to suggest to me that maybe that dog isn't as you know high drive as we thought, but he's got a whole lot of feelings and emotion. If we get a dog that gets frustrated and uses that and works with that and can accomplish their task better because of a little frustration, then okay, that's that's a dog that's got a whole lot more drive to me. Um, and doesn't get as caught up in those throes of, of arousal that could negatively impact its yeah. work ethic. So I don't know if you could answer this question, but I think you probably can. Suppose you and I are together and we've gone to a, a, a kennel. We're going to buy a, a single-purpose floppy-ear dog. You know, the guy's got seven, eight, nine, ten Labradors from all over the place. No backgrounds on them or whatever. Um, can you t- walk me through what are you going to do to figure out which dog you want to pick? Yeah, so the first thing I usually want to do is look through environmentals out of any type of drive. Um, I feel like drive can mask a lot as far as environmentals go. So we're going to do a passive walkthrough and kind of go through any any of our usual environmental stairs, slippery surfaces, dark buildings, whatever. If we can get them off site, even better. Um, looking at that environmental aspect of it when there is no no task necessarily at hand. And I'm looking at not just how that dog handles the environment, but how they're also um, looking or seeking work at that time. Is the dog just trying to jump up on me and visit the whole time? Or are they out at the end of their leash in pursuit of odor, trying to make something happen, trying to, to figure out what might be going on um, and, and make a game happen, even though nothing's happening yet? Yeah. We're after, you know, if everything looks good there. Um, one thing I do like to see, particularly in labs quite a bit, Will they switch from food to a toy? Not important in all academies, but often in many training systems who might be using some food on occasion and some toys. Labs, we can fall into the trap of a lab that will not switch food for a toy. They Once they get food, they will yeah. only take food. They do not have any interest in playing with the toy after that. Um, so I just like, you know, it's a little thing. I like to check the box sure. to make sure, okay, we can give them food. They're willing to play with a toy after. They don't care about that food anymore. Great. Um, we go through that, looking at some of our, our basic hunt stuff, looking at both, you know, kind of thrown plenty of the tall grass while they hunt for it. Um, looking at hunts that are more of your cold hunts. So not necessarily thrown out, um, but something that they might just kind of stumble along upon as we're either going through a building or, um, in a wood line or whatever, is that dog going to find a ball that's been placed out previously or a toy that's been placed out previously? As far as we go into play style, I do prefer a more possessive dog. I do prefer a dog that's willing to to engage me in a game of tug. Um, however, as long as that motivation is there, then that's there. So I want to see is that dog able to maintain great focus on that toy? Will they contain maintain possession of that toy, whether it be they keep it in their mouth or they're continually dropping it and pushing it into my foot to make me throw it again? Or do they get bored of the task and, you know, wander off after a a little bit? Um, And then I do want to see overall in that dog, what is their ability to problem solve? So if we set up something that's a particularly, you know, a hide that's deeper in an area or somewhere that is inaccessible, does that dog problem solve to try to achieve that task? Or do they they walk away when it gets too frustrating and they think they can't handle it? Um, and so that's my, 
my kind of very short that, version of that problem what I'd be that for. problem is going to be like an inaccessible toy or or just a longer yeah search. usually usually an inaccessible or something that's going to be um a little higher or deeper it's something that can be solvable if they're maybe willing to jump up on a thing or yeah. move around a thing yeah. or or push under a certain item but something that's going to require some problem solving from them and require a dog who you know is willing to commit to that task and stay on that task um and that's often where we can see that difference in arousal versus drive a higher arousal dog might get frustrated by that problem might either you know, start oftentimes uh, doing things like vocalizing or um, doing a little more spinning. You might leave that to go let some energy sure. off, doing a couple more laps around the room. Whereas that really gritty dog is often going to be super determined to make that happen. And sometimes I like when they even get a little pissed and, yeah. and you know, get 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 mad about it. Yeah. And, and they fight that much harder to get to their resolution. And those are the dogs, I, I agree, I like that test because in my experience, those are the dogs that um, tend to, Im tell me if, I, if you agree or not, but what I've seen is they tend to want to work towards source odor a little bit more. They want to just Correct. keep pushing through things and they won't fringe quite as much is kind of what I've seen. I agree, I agree. So if you, so the, the test you just described how long of, I mean, is that a half a day test or something or how long would that take you to do all those? Depends on the dog. Usually I feel like, and, and most people can't, you know, you often have a little bit of idea as soon as that dog steps yeah. out of, as soon as you take that dog out of the box, sure. if it's, you know, a, a dog you're into or not. Um, within most of those, if things like environmentals or all that doesn't look steady right off the bat, um, I'm not going to spend any more time with that. So yeah. that can be a quick 10 minutes wash your hands and done um with a dog if we're looking at young 10 11 month old dog i'm not looking for them to work for hours they don't have the mental maturity and stamina to do that at that point um and typically if they're off a vendor they're used to being in the kennel most of the time they don't have the, the yeah. endurance to work for a few hours and i don't expect them to that's not fair but i want to see if i pull them out you know can they give me a good solid half hour to an hour of being interested engaged in what i'm doing um and so typically when we're looking at testing i'm usually half hour to an hour and, and that's yeah. all i'm going to spend with that dog and so in that hour you've done the test and the dog i uh, i assume you know as long as he's passing he's passing and uh, so yeah. when, once he gets to all right i don't like this put him up and i'll go to the next dog i i guess my yep. point is is that i've heard of people who who uh you know budget in their their travel plans three days to selection test a labrador i i yeah. can't really understand what they're going to do on those three days it seems like a lot of times when we see it we see it and i think the mistake that i have been guilty of in the past and a lot of people are is they see it and then they don't want to see it so they try to make excuses and keep testing the dog saying well the environment in this place wasn't so bad but now we're going to go to home depot and test him there and keep testing until they get the answer that they're looking for as opposed to unfortunately this dog is not the what dog for me put him up i'll keep looking for another dog i agree and i think it's that difference are we really testing a dog or are we trying to train and fix a dog yeah um you know for really testing a dog okay we see a slippery floor in a new building now if it's something crazy insane yeah, I might cut a dog a little bit of slack and go, okay, it's rational. Yeah. Most of our dogs, you know, there, there's some things that you go, all right, 
but can the dog recover? Can they work through it? And can they recover within that scenario? If we have a dog that doesn't recover, what happens when that happens during Academy? We might not be able to spend three days working on getting that dog into that building. The dog either needs to be able to spend, you know, maybe two, three minutes. Okay, cool. They're good. And they're really good. We can move on. Um, But that's going to be a red flag for me regardless. If we have a dog who we're trying to talk ourselves into and we see something like a flooring issue. And so we keep pushing the flooring issue and we keep seeing it. And we go, okay, it's getting a little bit better and a little bit better. (sighs) Often, I mean, we're going to take them back. They're going to bond to the handler. Everyone in town falls in love with them and becomes whatever the, the community police dog. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, that, that issue is often going to crop back up again. Yep. It's going to come up. It's going to be there somewhere. So now I think we need to stop trying to talk ourselves into dogs. If we're looking at three days for testing a dog, really, what are you doing in that time? You know, are we, are we testing them or are we at that point we're training and we're, we're trying to fix. Yeah. And I think that I just, I wanted to bring that point up because you know, when you do, as you've done it more and more, um, a lot of times, like you say, I can kind of get a pretty good feel of the, of the of, I like the dog's attitude when I first see him. And then I just put him through the paces. And if he does, does the things that I expect him to do, I think the, the success rate's pretty good at that point. Um, it's, it's when we start trying to, well, we can make it work is, is where we have the, the, the trouble. And I don't think it needs to be a, a three day exercise on a lot of these dogs. I agree. I agree. If we were, you know, the only time I'd see three, if we expected a dog that had some, some training or maybe some background or some history and we're looking to maybe sort through some of that, I'm sure. But yeah. a green dog, a green dog does not need to be a three day adventure to, to work through one dog. Yeah. Well, there's, a, this has been, it's been a quick show, but it's been a lot of really good information. So um, I'd like to wrap up with, uh, if people are listening, where can they find you? What's your website? Yeah, so our website is catalystkennels.com. Uh, we are on social media. Catalyst Canine is the working dog side of the business. Catalyst Kennels will just bring you to a bunch of cute pet dog pictures. Um, and yeah, we're on Facebook, Instagram, all that. And uh, and it's Cat- for- Catalyst with a K, too. Just- Catalyst with a K, yes. So, so that's that. Yeah, you're pretty easy to find if you Google them. You got a nice website, a lot of information. All your contact information is on there, and if somebody's listening and they're looking, they're they're their market for, uh, you know, the ten month old dog we're talking about. Do you, you said sometimes you have those on hand at the at the time? Yeah. So right now we're running into normal. Uh, everyone's getting ready for March and April academies. So pretty much everything we've got is a. Uh, snatched up at this point but we always advocate you know agencies to reach out as early as they know um it's never you know we're keeping those dogs green it's never a, a commitment yeah. that you want a dog but if you let us know early then that's way way more likely that we'll have a dog for you than uh if you call monday sure. and, or friday <laughs> and the academy is supposed to start on monday so yep. sure well this is good information and i appreciate you kind of going a little bit deeper than in labradors than than what uh, i think we've done in the past so fantastic information i'm glad that we finally made this uh after trying a few times to connect i'm glad that you were able to make this work so thank you very much and i'm looking forward to getting some questions in so if people are listening to this and they have questions send them to me and if we get you know several good questions i'll get you back on and we'll go over some of the the things that you and i didn't talk about today that people want to hear about excellent no thank you very much and thrilled to be here and i appreciate you having me on the show 
Well, great. Thank you very much. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. As always, if I didn't ask uh, Kate enough questions and you had more questions for her, just email me at jeff at hitsk9.net. I'll forward them over to her, and if we get enough good questions, we'll bring her back on and discuss selection testing and breeding even more. I think there's a lot of good information in this episode, and I thank her for coming on. As always, I want to remind everybody that uh, HITS will be in Scottsdale, the Phoenix area, in August this year. So hitsk9.net for all the information about that. We're the largest seminar. We'll have uh, well over a thousand fellow handlers and a hundred vendors there. So if you've not been to HITS, uh, make sure you check us out. There's a reason why uh, people you know, come to us over year year after year. And if you haven't been for a couple of years, we change our instructors every year. We try to update things. So even the people who get to, are fortunate enough to get to come every year always find some really good information. So hitsk9.net for our big seminar in August. But then we also are on the road. We're doing smaller working dog seminars. So I'll be in Casa Grande, Arizona in March doing an e-collar seminar. So if you're interested in that, uh, begin the third week of March, I'll be in Casa Grande, Arizona. Still have some spots available for that. And then Jeff Barrett and I will be in uh, Valdosta, Georgia, doing a patrol dog seminar starting April 3rd. Uh, that information is also on our webpage at hitsk9.net, how to sign up and all the information about both those classes. So if you want to go to either of those, just reach out to me at jeff at hitsk9.net, or you can... Uh, reach out to me and talk about setting up your own class in your own area and we can come to you thanks everybody be safe out there